Well, Grant's uh, announcements were very compelling, and while he was speaking, I went to parkcommunitymn.com and signed up for this uh, weekly newsletter that I hear about. So if you guys haven't, you should. I don't even go here, and I sign up for it. So you guys need to, uh, need to sign up for it. Well, he sort of stole all my intro material, so uh, I'm John, and everything he said is true about me. Uh, my wife, Dina, is here with me, and my, the rest of my family is also here, and uh, we're just very thankful for Park, uh, not just for the one-time sort of big partnership that we've had in the revitalization of Elmwood, but the ongoing relationship that uh, we've been able to have with Pastor Andrew and Pastor Ben, and um, we're just so thankful for you guys and the investment that you've made into uh, the work of ministry that has been taking place in St. Anthony Village. So, this morning, uh, we get to look at Psalm 130. You guys have been in a series in the book of Psalms this summer, and uh, what you've been sort of hearing throughout the summer is that the Psalms are the prayer book of God's people. The Psalms are something of the, uh, the song book of God's people. It's a collection of songs and poems and prayers that God's people have used throughout the generations. And part of the purpose of the book of Psalms is to shape the individual person as we read them, as we meditate on them, as we would maybe sing them or uh, pray them back to God. It's designed to shape us as individuals. But more than that, the Psalms are designed to shape us as a collective body of Christ. The Psalms are designed to shape the collective uh, life and identity of God's people. And One of the things that I think a lot of people love about the Psalms is that in a way that's uh, somewhat unique to other maybe parts of Scripture, the Psalms really meet us in the midst of whatever we face. You see Psalms that have the highest of highs, and you have Psalms that have the lowest of lows. And we experience those same kind of things. There are times where everything is going great, everything is going wonderful, we've experienced healing, we've experienced deliverance. Everything is going great for us in life, and then there are times where we are in the valley of the shadow of death. And we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what we're going to do. We don't know where we're going. We're in anguish, and we're sort of sitting in our own little pity saying, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? And it's in those moments of the lowest of lows and the highest of highs that the Psalms has all of those and everything in between. And so what the Psalms do is they give us language to take all of those life experiences and to bring them before God in prayer. And so the Psalms are something of, uh, something of a template for us. We can certainly just go pray the Psalms back to God as they are, but one other thing we can do is we can use the Psalms as a guide, as sort of a template to guide our prayers, and we can pray according to how the Psalms teach us to pray. And that shapes us as individuals, it shapes us as a church family, it shapes us uh, the collective life of God's people as we do that together. So this morning, uh, we're looking at Psalm 130, and Psalm 130, if you've uh, not already done so, you can make your way in either a hard copy Bible or your mobile device, you can head over there now. And Psalm 130 is a part of uh, a sort of subsection within the book of Psalms. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are Psalms of Ascent. So if you look in your English translation right below where it says Psalm 130, you'll see in small words a song of ascents. And Psalm 120 through 134 all have that same title over them. And scholars believe that the reason that title exists is to tell us that these particular psalms were used as God's people would travel upwards on their journey towards the temple. And so they would either recite or they would sing or they would chant Uh, one of these psalms as they went up, as they went up to approach God and offer sacrifices in the tabernacle. And so these 
Psalms, if we look at Psalm 120 through 134, sort of looking at them collectively, what they show us is something of what it looks like to approach God. What it looks like for us to enter into God's presence. Now they don't do it maybe the way that we would want them to. You know, this, these, these Psalms are not particularly concerned with giving us a method, right, of how to have like a personal uh, devotion time. They're not designed to sort of give us some, some tips or some advice on how we can have a good, uh, quiet time with God. What they're designed to do is they're not concerned uh, with those specific methods, but they're concerned with giving us a posture, the posture with which we should approach God. And so we see something of that posture here today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this text for us, and then we're going to see an answer to this question of what does it look like for us to approach God. And we're going to see that from Psalm 130. So Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So what does it look like for us to approach God? Well, the first thing we see in the text is this. We remember who we are. We remember who we are. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cries for mercy. So the psalmist here is coming to God out of crying out to him out of a place of deep distress, out of the depths. Now, if you're familiar with the psalms, you'll have recognized this language of the depths. This comes up often in the psalms. And a, a lot of times it refers some, to something like a uh, deep state of emotional or spiritual turmoil that the psalmist is experiencing. And so you could even look at Psalm 86, which says this, I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love towards me. You have delivered me from the depths. There's our word. You've delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. And it's clear that in this case, the psalmist has experienced some kind of deliverance that felt like it was so disastrous and so tumultuous and so filled with turmoil and anguish that he felt like he was being delivered from death itself. So that's one way that this language of out of the depths is used, is it's used to refer to this sort of uh, anguish, uh, emotional or spiritual anguish that the psalmist uh, experiences. But here in Psalm 30, it's used a little bit differently. Sort of the sense of what we get with out of the depths in this passage is you could sort of translate uh, to get the sense of this, uh, verse 1 would say, Out of the depths of my brokenness and sinful condition, I cry to you, Lord. So that's the, that's the sense of what out of the depths means here. Out of the depths of my brokenness and my sinful condition, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cries for mercy. Now we know that this is the sense of this because you can go ahead and read the next verse, verse 3 which says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? So what the psalmist is doing in these first opening verses here is he's coming before the Lord and he's recognizing something of his condition before God. 
He's recognizing that he comes to God from a place of inner brokenness and sinfulness, and he comes to God saying, God, it's out of this place of sinfulness that I cry out to you, and God, I'm asking you for your mercy. I'm asking you to be attentive to my cries for mercy because, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? I certainly could not stand before you. Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who, if anybody, could ever stand before you? And the clearly implied answer to that question is what? Besides Jesus, come on now, Jesus. <laughs> the answer is nobody. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And the answer is not a single person. So we all, like the psalmist, come to God. We come before God with brokenness and with sin and idolatry that is in our lives. Now the concept of, of sin, not just like uh, I did a bad thing once and it was sort of uh, this you know, strange thing. It doesn't happen all that often, but I did this bad thing once or I told a white lie or yes, yeah, sometimes I do bad things. You know, what, the, what the Bible actually says about sin, that we are deeply and fundamentally corrupted by sin and in, in the deepest recesses of our hearts. What the Bible has to say about sin is not exactly uh, uh, mainstream or popular. <laughs> it's not a mainstream or popular concept uh, for pretty good reason, right? This is, uh, this is what Dale Carnegie left out of his book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, is the chapter on talking about sin, right? This is not how you make friends, is going around talking about sin. But this is, this is the picture of reality that the Bible paints for us that there is not a single human being who is naturally inclined to love God or obey his instruction. There is not a single human being who apart from the divine intervention of God to, to renovate and to change them at the heart level is even interested in worshiping God and following his instruction. There is not a single human being who, whose natural heart disposition is to love God with every fiber of their being, to worship Him exclusively, to give Him their fullest allegiance and to, and to worship Him, and then as an overflow, as a response to the character of God to love their neighbor as they love themselves. There's not a single human being whose natural inclination is to do that. And this is the condition that we all find ourselves in. I think it's important that we just, uh, as, as we talk about sin, that we uh, be careful that we have to guard against uh, reducing sin, oversimplifying it to things like bad behavior. Okay, uh, thinking of sin as equivalent to the bad things we do. Now, certainly that is a part of it, and and, and my grandparents' generation had this uh, had this saying, and some of you may know it: "Don't drink, don't chew, don't don't go with girls who do." <laughs> right. And this is not, uh, this is not unique uh, to that generation. Uh, you can look at any generation and see the list. Don't watch these kind of movies, don't listen to this kind of music, don't hang out with these kind of people, don't eat these kind of things, don't drink these kind of things. And there's the list, right? And it's, it's easy to do that, to accumulate a list of, well, here's the bad things and stay away from those things. And sort of the implication is, well, if I just stay away from those sort of quote unquote bad things, whatever those are defined as, then I'm pretty much doing okay. And it can be very easy to sort of reduce and oversimplify sin to being just a list of here's the bad things that we do. 
And certainly that's a part of it, but the way that the Bible talks about sin is far more nuanced than that, is far more robust than that. What the Bible says about sin is that sin is, uh, the, the essence of sin is not doing bad things. The essence of sin is a heart that is far from God. Now the outworking, the fruitfulness of that heart that is far from God will always be sinful actions. But sin doesn't begin with our behavior, it begins with something that happens internally. What we do is we look to a created thing that God has given us for our good and for our enjoyment. We'd look to those things to provide something for us that only God has designed to provide for us. So we look to our vocation, or our family, our spouse, our children, to money, or to possessions, or experiences, or pleasures, or accomplishments, achievements. We look to these things to provide something for us that only God was designed to do. And when we do that, when we cross that line, those good things that God has given us for our enjoyment become idols. And so we look to these good gifts from God to, prov to provide for us a sense of safety and comfort and identity and security and meaning and purpose that only God was designed to give us. And so what that means is that sometimes that idolatry works its way out in really bad-looking behavior, the people who lie, cheat, and steal. But sometimes it works its way out in very good-looking behavior. If you find your meaning and identity in your vocation, you're not going to lie, cheat, and steal. You're going to be the best employee. You're going to go above and beyond. You're going to stay late. You're going to work extra hard. And so it's just not as simple, you see, as, as, as saying, okay, here's all the bad things. Don't do those things. It's much deeper and much more complex than that. And, and, and we, as we, as we think about the concept of sin, need to have a, a robust biblical picture of it so that we can see the depths of what's really there inside of us. And that's, I think, really important for us to recognize that. And so then all of us, then with the psalmist, we've got to recognize our desperate condition before God. We recognize that we don't look at the psalm and say, oh boy, his experience sounded really awful. No, we look at the text and we say, yeah, that's my story too. Out of the depths of my brokenness and my sinfulness, I cry out to God. And so we recognize our condition before Yahweh that we are broken people, that we are in desperate need of God's mercy like the psalmist here is. So that's the first thing we do, is we recognize who we are, and the second thing is we remember who God is. We have to remember who God is, because we can't, we can't leave here without, uh, without taking this next step, because we leave here all very sad. We leave here all very discouraged and depressed if we just took a hard look at who we are. But we don't just look at who we are, we remember who God is. And in this psalm here, we see uh, some, some indicators, some, some, the, the psalmist revealing some things about who God is. And so what we see about God in this text is this. Number one, we have a God who meets us in our distress. We have a God who meets us in the midst of our distress. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve rebel against God, God pronounces his judgment on them. But within that judgment, God makes a promise that he will crush the head of the serpent. And then what God does is he meets them in the midst of their nakedness and their vulnerability and their distress. They've recognized that they're naked and they were ashamed and they were afraid. And God covered their nakedness. He met them in the midst of their distress and, and, and made provision for them. 
at Elmwood, we're in the middle of a, uh, actually next week, finishing a sermon series in the book of Exodus. So this is sort of fresh in my mind here. Uh, but it, it reminds me of Exodus chapter 3, where the people cry out to God, and God goes to Moses and said, I've seen, I've heard the cries of my people, and I am concerned for them. And then what God does is he meets his people in the midst of their distressing situation, in the midst of their vulnerability as they are enslaved and oppressed in the land of Egypt, and he brings deliverance for them. And then he, he brings them to Mount Sinai, he gives them his covenant law, his instruction, and while God is giving Moses the instruction for how to build this sort of tent in the, in the wilderness called the tabernacle, which is the way that God has provided for his presence to be with his people, as God is giving him those instructions, the people are at the foot of the mountain doing what? They've created a golden calf. And what's interesting is God goes to Moses and says to him, you know, the people have really blown it. And so I'm going to wipe all of them out and I'm going to start over with you. Which sounds like a very enticing proposition for Moses. Oh, I can be, I can be the new Abraham of, of God's people? But what Moses does is he rejects that and he says, no, 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 no. He, he appeals to God and he goes and he makes intercession for the people. And he goes to God and he appeals to God's name and his character and he says, God, if you kill them all, what are the Egyptians going to think? And then he appeals to the character of God. He says, remember the promises that you made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You are a promise maker and a promise keeper. And so he appeals to this. And what's, what's more shocking and more surprising than the fact that Moses, instead of taking this offer, in, 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 what's more surprising than that is that God listens to Moses. Moses intercedes and the text tells us that God relented. God turned from the disaster that he had promised to bring on the people. And so you come here to Psalm 130, and you see the same pattern happening over and over again, where the psalmist is crying out of the depths, asking God to hear his voice, and he's penning these words because he has seen the track record of God. And he knows that this is the kind of God who meets his people in the midst of their distress. And so what does that mean? What do we do then? If we know that we have a God like that, is we call out to him in the midst of our distress. And that's what the psalmist does here. So we remember who God is, that he is a God who meets us in the midst of our distress. We remember, secondly, that he is a God who does not keep score. Verse 3, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. We have a God who does not keep score, who is a God of forgiveness. Some of us here know what it's like to be in relationship with somebody who keeps score. Maybe that's a close friend, maybe that's a spouse, maybe that's a family member. And they keep a mental list of all the ways that you have hurt them and wronged them. And every time there's, there, there's a new conflict, it's a flashpoint for all of those things to come flooding back in and for you to be reminded of all the ways that you have failed, all the ways, even if it's only perceived, all the ways that you have sinned against that person, they, they, keep, they keep score. They keep a track record of your sins. And I think all of us who have experienced that would say, that is an awful thing. <laughs> that is an awful thing to experience. But the good news that this text shows us is that God is not like that. God does not keep score. God does not keep tally. He does not keep a record of all of our sins. On, on, on the contrary, the text says, but with you there is forgiveness. 
Now, of course, just to be clear about this, the forgiveness that God offers is offered to everybody when we come to God on his terms. It's not just a blanket forgiveness that God gives to everybody, no matter who you are or what you believe. The forgiveness that God offers is given to us and extended to us to anybody who would come to God on his terms, who would recognize the brokenness and the sinful condition that they are in and the idolatry that exists inside of their heart and would surrender their allegiance to him. So we have a God who does not keep score. He's a God of forgiveness. And the third thing we see about God in this text is this, that he is filled with unfailing love. He's a God who is filled with, who is overflowing with unfailing love. Verse 7, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Uh, the Hebrew word that is uh, translated unfailing love here is a very uh, uh, well-known Hebrew word, uh, chesed. If you don't get some phlegm when you say it, you're not really doing it right. It's kind of a guttural thing. Uh, but this, this is a, a, a word that is hugely important throughout the Bible, and it occurs numerous times. Uh, it begins in Exodus 34, where having rebelled against God, having done this foolish thing of creating a golden calf while they're at the base of Mount Sinai in God's presence, God reveals himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, abounding in faithful, steadfast, loyal covenant love, maintaining love to thousands. So this is who, this is who God is. In the face of the brokenness and the idolatry of the golden calf, God reveals his nature as he is overflowing with faithfulness. Now it's clear from looking at Exodus 32 that the people have, have not been faithful. <laughs> it's been less than two months before they've completely uh, abandoned their commitment to Yahweh. But God, in, in the face of their unfaithfulness, God remains faithful to them. And this is what we see, is that in the face of our unfaithfulness, in the face of our brokenness and idolatry, God still remains faithful to us. And so this is the picture we see of who God is in this passage. He's a God who meets us in our distress. He's a God who does not keep score, who forgives. He's a God who is filled with unfailing love. Now we, so we begin by remembering who we are, right? And then we secondly remember who God is. And just, just put these two things side by side and, and, and look at the picture of who we are. We are broken, we are filled with sin and idolatry, and in the face of that, we have a God like this. Which makes it a whole lot easier to stomach the reality of who we are when we recognize that we have a God like this, right? Now, this, this is good news for us, that we have this God. <laughs> that we have a God like this, but the news gets even better because everything that we see about who God is in this passage if we let it, leads us forward, grabs us by the hand and leads us forward to see the person of Jesus. Everything that this text says about who God is and what he's like is, comes to fruition in the person of Jesus. It's like what we see here is, is a mostly clear picture and then we come to Jesus and it, and it snaps into its sharpest focus. Where we look at the person of Jesus and we see that in Jesus, God has in the clearest way, met us in the midst of our distress, met us in the midst of our vulnerability. 
God did not remain distant from us in our brokenness, in the idolatry, in, in all the garbage that we experience. God did not remain distant from us. Rather, the God who created the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, took on human flesh, and he accompanied us in our humanity. And he experienced life in a broken world, although he did not sin. He perfectly loved God as his, as his father and lived in perfect obedience to him, and he perfectly loved his neighbor. But he experienced life in the midst of a broken world, and what we see in the person of Jesus is something that would be unthinkable. That instead of laying upon us the full weight of his justice and his judgment that we would rightly deserve, God chose instead to take on the brokenness of our humanity and to accompany us in it. And in that, we see that he is a God who meets us in the midst of our distress and meets us in the midst of our vulnerability. But not only this, we see in the cross of Jesus, we see a God who is filled with forgiveness, a God who does not keep score. As Jesus lived the death that we lived, the life that we were intended to live and never lived, and then suffered and died on the cross, dying the death that we deserve to die, what happened in that moment was that God himself, who had taken on human flesh, absorbed into himself the pain and the sting of the sin and the idolatry that we have committed. And he did so, so that all who come to him by faith and give their trust and give their allegiance to him and follow him would be forgiven. That's the essence of forgiveness, is, is, that, is, is choosing not to get even. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is giving up your right to get even. And this is what God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus sat under the rightful justice and judgment of God he absorbed that into himself so that God's justice and judgment could pass over us. And we could experience the grace that God has. And we could experience forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration in our relationship with him. So in the person of Jesus, we see not only that God meets us in the midst of our distress, he offers us forgiveness, but Jesus is the answer to the one who brings to completion all of the, the covenant promises that God made. God made those promises that he would crush the head of the serpent, that he would defeat evil, that he would defeat death, that he would de remake the world, that he would bring his blessing back in the world and undo everything that's been, that's been destroyed in the world due to the sin that we have brought into it. He made that promise, and it's at the cross that he does that most fully. It's the clearest example of the covenant faithfulness of God, that God himself would be so committed to our good that God himself would be so committed to his covenant promises and his redemptive purposes that he would give his own son. That is the lengths to which God would go in order to make his world right again and to bring about the restoration and reconciliation of our relationship with him. So in the person of Jesus, we see God has not remained distant from us. He has come near to us. He meets us in the midst of our distress. He offers forgiveness. He does not keep score. He's a God who is filled with unfailing love. And so what is, the, what, what is the response to this? We, number one, we see who we are. We remember who we are. Number two, we remember who God is. And number three, we cast ourselves on him. We cast ourselves on his unfailing love. We cast ourselves upon his mercy. Verse five, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning 
more than watchmen wait for the morning. The only reasonable response to seeing who we are and to seeing who God is, is to cast ourselves upon him, is to surrender ourselves to him, is to put our hope in him, as the psalmist urges us to do. The only reasonable response is to give ourselves to him. And so this morning, whether that is the first time or whether that is the thousandth time that you have trusted Jesus by faith, my encouragement to you is that you would this morning, you would see a clear picture of who you are and who God is and that you would, that we would collectively as a church family, that we would cast ourselves on him. We have the great privilege this morning of coming to the communion table and as we do, I'd like to invite you to bow for a moment of silent reflection and confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We've sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Or we confess that we have sinned against you by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And we confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, in your mercy, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, in a seat back in front of you, there will be little communion cups and wafers that look like this. And so during this last song, uh, our encouragement as the worship team comes to lead us uh, is that you would uh, sometime during this last song uh, spend time communing with the Lord. And as you do so, I would like to read the words of institution that Jesus gave on the night he was betrayed. On the night before he died for us, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper... He took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. So here this morning, according to our Lord's command, we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, and we await his coming in glory.